special welcome to everyone here and especially to our visitors. It's great to have you all here today. My name is Warren Wright and I am a leader here at GFC and it's my privilege to open God's Word with you today. As you heard, announcements about Bibles, pens and outlines, childcare and babies and all of that. I'm not going to repeat all of that. And we have another baby here today. That's wonderful news. We have many babies here and we are privileged to have so many babies at GFC. But have you ever noticed how messy babies are? <laughs> yes, indeed. If a baby doesn't like his or her food, what do they do? They just spit it up, right? All over themselves. But we don't mind because they are cute. <laughs> the ladies all agree. Uh, and they don't know any better and they can't control themselves yet. But what happens if I went to a restaurant and I didn't like my meal and I decided that the way I was going to show my displeasure was just to vomit it all over myself? <laughs> Would you react the same way? Probably not. It would be totally socially unacceptable for me to do that. Have you ever done anything socially unacceptable? Today we're going to see a story about that. <laughs> All right, before, as some of you know, I spent some time uh, at studying at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And out of all the places I've been in my life, this is the place that has the most absurd rules of social behavior where you can be socially unacceptable doing pretty normal things. Like most U.S. institutions, they have undergraduates and graduates, but unlike most U.S. universities, tenured professors are treated somewhat like nobility. They have rights and privileges that everyone else doesn't. So let me give you an example. For the students, there will be no running or untoward behavior while moving from building to building within the college. And I had, on occasion, a reason to run from building to building, and, and uh, some stern man in a suit came up to me and told me to behave myself. <laughs> For the fellows, you can go from building to building in whatever manner you see fit. Another example. For the students, you may never, ever, under any circumstances, walk on the grass. <laughs> During my time there, I was convinced that it would be a more heinous offense to walk on the grass than to run around with your head on fire in your underpants. <laughs> but for the fellows, the grass is yours to trod. <laughs> ah, but you see, they're always rebels. They're always those who choose to disdain these rules and forge their own identity, who want to break free from these societal constraints. And at Cambridge, the most successful rebels, the most able to elude capture, the most cunning, they had a name. They were the ducks. <laughs> Seriously, ducks, feathered birds. I think that's funny, but the institutions had a real problem. What to do about these ducks who were usurping the privileges of fellows and befouling their lawns? <laughs> there were two solutions that the, that the colleges adopted. The first one was, if you can't beat them, ignore them. Just treat them like they don't exist. But there's always one college, right? There's always one. They had a different solution. If you can't beat them, redefine them so that they're actually on your side. They made the ducks honorary fellows. <laughs> and that gave them, of course, full privileges to walk on the grass. Today, we will be looking at John 13, verses 1 to 17, which is on page 585 of the Church Bible. It's a story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Talk about socially unacceptable behavior. Very improper. Way worse than walking on the grass. 
But when Jesus does something that violates social taboos, we shouldn't ignore him like most of the colleges. We should, in fact, redefine our reality to be on his side, like what that one college did. Now, this is such a rich piece of scripture, and there are many great lessons that we can learn from it. And I'll try to point out a few as we go along, but it's really the main lesson that we're after. And the main lesson simply stems from the fact that the king of all creation served his disciples in a very demeaning way. This is why I've labeled today's sermon demeaning kingly service. But before we get to the text, we need to ask the question of why. Why does the author, why does John include this foot-washing incident in his gospel? In order to ask that, we need to ask the question of why did he write this gospel at all? In John 20 verses 31, it says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the point of the whole gospel is that the main character, Jesus, is the Christ. He is God and man. He came to earth and died for our sins against God to save us. So how does a story about Jesus washing his disciples' feet help me believe that he's the Christ, our Savior? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward, but it's powerful. Think of this. If a true Savior allowed his followers to destroy each other out of petty rivalries, then the people that were supposedly saved are actually destroyed. doesn't sound like much of a Savior to me. But Jesus is the perfect Savior. He will not let rivalries ruin his church. And that is how this story fits into the grand scheme of proving that he is our perfect Savior. And by the way, for those of you who like things connected and things to make sense one with another, if we remove rivalries and we promote self-sacrificing service, one of the blessings we will get is unity. We've spent the last five weeks in Ephesians, which is all about unity. So isn't it wonderful how the Bible fits together, all the themes work together so well? All right, we're ready to jump into the text now. Let's pray that God will bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word does not return to you void, that it accomplishes everything that you wanted to accomplish. Lord, give us open hearts and open ears, Lord, that your word might find a home in us and reap the fruit of righteousness for your glory. Give me the grace to preach faithfully and clearly, Lord, that your word might be understood. Thank you for our time. Amen. All right, let's turn to John 13. It's on page 585. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The passage I've just read marks a new section in the Gospel of John. Up until now, we've been dealing with Jesus' public ministry, where he said many amazing things and performed miracles, including raising Lazarus from the dead. The main takeaway is that his ministry was largely rejected. In fact, it was more than rejected. The religious leaders of the day wanted to kill him. In verse 1, we see that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. He was about to die. Those religious leaders who wanted to kill him, they're finally going to get their way. History tells us that the context of this scene is a day or two away from the crucifixion. So Jesus is about to die. Have you, you've probably heard the question, if today was your last day on earth, what would you do? Most of us would want to do the things we enjoy, right? And avoid things like hardship and suffering. But what did Jesus do on his last day? And this is your first fill in the blank, right? It says, when, Jesus, when faced with a demeaning death, the king chose to serve. That's your fill in the serve. In verses 4 to the beginning of 5, we see Jesus preparing to wash his disciples' feet. He gets up, he takes off his outer garments, he ties a towel around his waist, and he gets a basin of water. The significance of these actions is that Jesus, the honored one, their leader, was doing something very strange. By taking off his outer garments and tying a towel around his waist, Jesus was removing his teacher's clothes, his teacher's robes, and replacing them with the slaves' clothes. The disciples didn't know quite what was going on, but the net result is that their treasured, honored teacher now looked like a serving slave. Socially unacceptable. It's also important to note who Jesus is serving. He is about to serve his disciples and his betrayer, Judas. Talk about committed to serving. We might find that we could serve our friends. It's kind of hard, but we can swallow our pride and serve our friends. But to serve our enemies, that's something else. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 44 to 45, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We see in verse 15 that Jesus says that we should do as he is doing here. So, The question is, how can I emulate Jesus in these preparations? So even though Jesus was facing his own death, a stressful situation, he thought of serving others 
do we think of serving others? What about serving others while we are in a stressful situation? Are we prepared to interrupt our meals, our plans to serve others? Another thing we can notice, Jesus prepared before he acted. He didn't just grab the nearest disciple's foot and start thinking, oh, I need water and a towel. Do you prepare to serve? Do you think ahead, plan ahead? All right, now let's look at how he served. He washed their feet. We see it in verse 5. Now, the ancient practice of foot washing needs a little bit of explaining, all right, because washing feet seems a little gross now. But in those days, typically a host would greet the guest and then provide a basin of water for either the guest to wash their own feet or also provide a servant for to wash the guest's feet. Now, why? People did a lot of walking in those days on roads that were not as sanitary as ours, and they often wore sandals. So, lots of walking on dirty roads in sandals. Sounds like a recipe for really smelly, dirty feet. If I had stinky feet like that, anybody within 10 paces would recommend I get them washed. But washing those feet would be a really dirty, stinky job. In Jesus' time, just about the only time somebody did that for somebody else was when a slave did it for the guests, the master's guest or the master. In fact, Jewish slaves were thought to be above the task. Only non-Jewish slaves were actually required to perform it. Now, as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he met a real need that they had. They needed cleanliness. And of course, that prevents disease and other such unpleasant complications. And I should think that being clean also promotes having people around you because they can tolerate being around you. But just because Jesus met a, re- a real need, there was still a problem because according to social customs, this was not a way that he should serve. He was not a non-Jewish slave. He wasn't a slave at all. Even beyond that, the task is way below what a respected teacher should be doing. He went so far off the beaten path that nobody understood him. What about us? Does being socially unacceptable stop you from loving or serving somebody or meeting a need? Are you too popular to help the awkward and unpopular? Do you shy away from serving because people won't understand and they might give you strange looks? How would you react? If somebody you really respected, think of that person, someone you really respected, randomly came up to you and said, hey, I'd like to wash your toilet. Would you give them a strange look, much like you just gave me? <laughs> Let's see what Peter did, right? In verse 6, to the beginning of 8, we see that Simon Peter refuses Christ's service. Now, why did he refuse? Well, it wasn't because his feet were clean or it was a bad time. He uses the word never. It wasn't because he didn't trust Jesus. He uses the word Lord. The reason he refused is because the action did not fit the stature of who Jesus was. It was demeaning. It was socially unacceptable. The master does not act like the slave. And this is your next fill in the blank. The king's service did not fit his stature. It was demeaning. It may seem like humility to prevent the great from serving you, but it is a misunderstanding of the value of service. Besides, think how wrong Peter must be to refuse his master something. By refusing, he has determined that his interpretation is more important than Jesus' desires. 
despite the fact that his Lord just told them, you don't understand. This illustrates how backwards we can get things. Today's culture values those who are served above those who serve. Just contrast a Hollywood diva versus, say, somebody who feeds the homeless. Who does society value more? Well, the diva. She has a whole crew of people ready to attend to her every beck and call. She's surrounded by servants and has hordes of rabid fans. But the shelter worker, who instead of being served, serves. She probably doesn't have a fan base. Her opinions are not published in the best-selling newspapers and magazines or read by millions online. In this scene, we see that the opposite is true. We see the celebrity serving demeaningly. You see, service is not something for the unskilled or the unpopular or the uneducated or the poor. It's an action for everybody and it ennobles its doers. The leader is servant to the follower, not the other way around. But Peter doesn't get it. He's hung, hung up on the fact that his Lord is doing something socially unacceptable. And so, how does Jesus respond to his refusal? In verse, in the second half of verse 8, we see that Jesus has to wash his own. Jesus doesn't immediately deal with the objection of feet. He deals with the washing. He deals with the heart issue. He says that, I cannot be your leader without serving you. If I do not serve you, you cannot be my follower. The specific example in view here is salvation. We cannot be accepted by God unless Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus had to go through the most demeaning, painful, insulting, disgusting service for us by dying on the cross. In verses 9 and 10, we see Peter getting excited and then wanting his hands and his head washed and then Jesus responding with, you are clean, but you just need your feet washed. So then you might ask, what is this washing now with the feet that you are clean, but just need your feet washed? What's going on here? There's a great deal of divided opinion amongst biblical scholars as to what Jesus' responses mean. But I think the best view is that Jesus is doing something he does often. He uses everyday circumstances and objects as examples of spiritual truths. In verse 8, where Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me, the washing is more referring to salvation. Right? If I don't save you, you can have no part of me. And in verse 10, where you are clean but you just need your feet washed, it's a symbol for Christian experience. So you start off, the one who is accepted by Jesus is clean, permanently. Yet experientially, we still sin every day, and we need to turn and repent and depend upon him for the next day. And so you get your feet washed. So this is just like you are clean, you've just taken a bath or shower, and then you walk a little bit on a dusty road and your feet get dirty. You don't need to rebath and re-shower, you just need to wash your feet. So Peter is the clean person because of Jesus' saving work, and the experiences of life dirty you, just like walking on the dusty road, and thus daily depending on Jesus is like washing those dirty feet. Okay, so what do we make of all this? What is the main point here? What was Jesus trying to communicate by washing his disciples' feet? Was it a simple act of love for his disciples, the type of love that breaks through social boundaries? Was it a symbol of what he was about to accomplish on the cross, the washing away of the stain of sin? 
Or was it a lesson to his disciples on how to treat one another? You see, all these answers are correct. But what is the one thing Jesus wants you, wants me, to be impacted by? It's an easy question to answer because Jesus gives us the answer in verses 13 and 14. Let's just read that again. In verse 13, Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. See what he's doing there? He's contrasting his title with his action. He's contrasting his high social status with his demeaning service. And this is your next fill-in. The person who served demeaningly was the king. And so king is your fill-in. So what do we learn from this? We learn that the worldly priority of the weak serving the strong is backward. We need to redefine our reality to line up with God's views. God views service as something we all should do, from the social outcast to the social elite. God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, He serves us every day. He makes the sun rise. He gives you your next breath. He lets your heart beat another beat. Look how involved He is in your life, in the small details. This is not to say that He is subservient to us, rather that He employs us daily. Sorry, He employs Himself daily on our behalf. He who is master of all is servant of all. Another thing we learn from this section is that we learn how important it is for, to Jesus that we follow his example. Let's have a look at verses 14 to 17. In 14, he says, wash one another's feet. In 15, he says, do just as I have done. In 16, he says, the servant is not greater than his master, which is just another way of saying, if I did it, so should you. And then in 17, he says, you are blessed if you do it. Another motivation to do it. That's four ways. Four Four ways that Jesus emphasizes how important it is for us to follow his example. So then, should we all run out and wash each other's feet? Maybe. But Jesus' point is that you should never hold back from serving because it is demeaning or insulting or beneath you or degrading or inconvenient. If you can do something beneficial for somebody, do it without regard to how others will perceive it. What is at stake here? Why is Jesus so insistent? In Proverbs 16, verses 18, it says, as a scripture many of you know well, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He said that again. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That is why Jesus is so insistent. He is too perfect a savior to allow his church to fall apart and be destroyed. He's too perfect a savior to allow you to fall apart and be destroyed. Now, if all this was easy and all it took was a simple decision to, yes, I'm going to go serve, I could end the sermon here and say, go forth and serve humbly. Amen. Let's pray. But it's not that simple, right? Why? What prevents us from following Jesus' example? This is a sermon that's basically about humility. So the question is, why aren't we more humble? Well, there are a few reasons. The biggest one is probably pride. And this can look like fear of other people's opinions, fear of failure, fear of rejection. 
But what, what can this look like practically as like a scenario? So instead of serving the friendless, we may think to ourselves, if I'm seen helping or even talking to that awkward person, people are going to think I'm like them and will not want to have, to have anything to do with me. So I would be tainted by association. Another example is, instead of serving our community with honesty, you may think to yourself, if I let people see who I really am and they realize I'm actually a bit of a mess, then they won't value my opinions. Another one is, instead of serving one another through our small group discussions or growth group discussions, you may think to yourself that if I don't have the most spiritual answer, people are going to think I'm spiritually shallow. The problem with all of these is caring too much about what people think and too little about what God thinks. Another reason that uh, we struggle with humility is sometimes we can have an inflated sense of self-importance where we simply view others as not worth our time, below us. The problem here is a lack of love and, and a misunderstanding of where our real place is. So now that we've had a look at what we should do, we should serve humbly, and we've had a look at what hindrances face us, fear of man, self-importance, and so forth, what should our response be? Well, let's first ask, what is our response typically? For those who do not believe in Jesus, you might agree that service is a good idea, but you don't feel particularly compelled to do it because Jesus says so. To you, I say, reconsider who Jesus is and what he has done. Ask questions. This is not a subject to remain passive on. To the believer, there are two general reactions. First one is, oh my goodness, more stuff for me to do before God's happy with me. To you, I say, God is happy with you, loves you and adores you and accepts you because of the perfect work of Christ. Nothing you can do can make him happier with you. And the second reaction is, oh my goodness, more stuff for me to do. And I will try because God loves me. But I need help. That's the correct response. So where do we get this needed help? Let us look at what is reported went through Jesus' mind as he prepared himself to serve. In verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus knew three things. He knew that his time was limited, he loved his own, and he knew his identity. And there are three things about his identity that we see that he, that he knew. He knew that he owned everything, that he came from God, and he was going back to God. So how do these reasons for service apply to you? Number one, time is limited, so use your opportunities. Pretty simple. Number two, love the brethren, the community of believers. When that's hard, pray. Pray that God would give you the love you need in order to serve one another. Because without this, your service really loses the impact it could have. And number three, and this is the biggest help, know your identity. So what is your identity? If you believe in Jesus, then you were once the betrayer, the enemy. But Jesus rescued you. And now you are the adoptive child of God. And you will return to him when your work here on earth is done. More than that, your Savior loves you and he owns everything. All these powerful truths about our identity are only possible because Jesus served us by dying on the cross to save us. And this is your last fill in the blank. We can serve demeaningly because our King served us. So the last fill in is served us. 
Okay, so how does knowing your identity help you serve humbly? Well, it helps you because when you are faced with the fear of man, you can rather turn and look at how much God loves you and what his opinion is of you. And then the opinions of everyone else fade into the background. Or if you have an inflated sense of self-importance, you can instead love the unlovable because you are unlovable and he saved you and loved you. So in conclusion, we are given the command to serve humbly, but it's hard, mostly because of pride. And the solution is to remember who we are in Jesus and what he has done for us. And one of the things he did for us was that he went against social norms and he tells us to follow him. This is going to require rethinking how we define social norms. So how is it normally defined? A social norm is a way of ranking people as those above and those below. And usually the scale, the measuring stick, is something like wealth or reputation or intelligence. And then we use the scale to figure out who should serve who. The lower ranks should serve the upper ranks. But Jesus breaks this in pieces. He, over, he overturns the idea that service is for the lower ranks. He says service is for everybody. And he renders this whole service system, this whole ranking system, as futile. We see in Psalm 62 verse 9 how futile it actually is. It says, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. Not a weighty subject. The more important thing is to serve. You see, there are actually only two ranks. There's God and there's man. There's only one elite, and he is Jesus. And he is a name that is greater than every other name. The rest of us, indeed all of mankind, we are just like those ducks. And with our sin, we have befouled his lawn. But you see, the glory of the gospel is that Jesus didn't ignore us, like some of the colleges, nor did he get the shotgun out and give us what we really deserved. Instead, he died on the cross for our sins and adopted us. Just like the one, dot, the one college did for those pesky ducks, Jesus made us fellows. And with this perspective, and with this correct definition of reality, we can overcome the hindrances that face us as we attempt to serve humbly. Because how can we fear man... When the king, when God loves us and serves us and died for us, how can we view ourselves as better than others when we are all simply ducks, lawn befoulers? So go forth and serve humbly. And when it is hard, remember what Jesus did for you and how he served you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your example of demeaning kingly service. It is a delight, Lord, to reflect upon how you served us on the cross and how that enables us to serve one another humbly. Lord, we want to obey you and serve humbly, but we need help, Lord. So please help us by giving us the love we need to serve one another as our motivation. Give us the grace we need to, lie, to lay our pride down and remind us, Lord, of who we are in you. We are saved we are adopted and we are glorified because of your work. And Lord, in reminding us of these things, make us more like yourself. For your glory. Amen.